0: Welcome to today's reading of the Council Plus Comparale. I'm your reader, John McPartland, and here's our first story. This story is about uh, State Representative Josh Turek, whose focus is on Council Plus. Six-year-old Hayes Hoffmeister of rural Cedar Rapids, a Springville, Springville farm kid, can't stop talking about Josh Turek, that guy in the wheelchair, the one who plays basketball, and has Paralympics gold medals, the one who inspired him at Camp Sunnyside. Born with spina bifida, Hayes is—excuse uh, me—I lost my place there. Uh, Hayes is a bright-eyed kindergartner, excitedly rolled his own wheelchair towards State Representative Josh Turek of Council Bless at the Easter Seals camp in Des Moines on a recent fall Saturday morning. They started talking one-on-one as Hayes' mom and grandmother beamed. Turek, too, is in a wheelchair. In fact, he's Iowa's first permanently and visibly disabled legislator. Coming of age in an Iowa basketball family, Turek won three medals in the Paralympics as he represented the United States. He then played basketball professionally in Europe before returning to Iowa and winning one of the closest state legislative races in Hawkeye history. You know Hayes Turek who also was born with Spina Bifida, told the boy, you can do anything. Do you like basketball? You can play right over there. Head to the gym and get a ball. Just go get a ball and see if you like it. Find something you like to do. You can do anything you want. The exchange continues to motivate Hayes, his mother, Hannah Hoffmeister, an Eastern Iowa livestock farmer, said in a phone interview earlier this week. It was just nice to see that Josh, in that capacity, and for Hayes to see that, said Hannah Hoffmeister. He's still talking about that guy in the wheelchair playing basketball. We live in a rural community. The only people we see in wheelchairs are the elderly. Turek is 44. Now, Hannah says her son Hayes is watching Turk's Paralympics basketball games on YouTube. I think probably 85 or 90% of the people who are in my sort of condition or with similar disabilities this situation breaks them, and they don't go on to live meaningful, successful lives, Turek said in an interview during the drive with a reporter on Interstate 80 from Counts Plus to Des Moines. But the ones who come through are stronger, and those make them the most interesting hardcore people. Some of those that get broken become harder in the broken places, it's totally true. The struggle builds a character. If you can get through that, and it doesn't completely break you, it makes you stronger, a much more interesting individual. The streets of Council Bluffs stubbornly turn quickly and jet up hills, and it can be a long walk from the street to a door. Door Door-to-door retail politics is more challenging here than in flatter reaches of the state where the horizon isn't interrupted by hill after hill after hill. Even candidates in the best shape find the task arduous. But this is the city from which Iowa's first visibly, permanently disabled state legislature emerged. A Council Bluffs native, Turek, a Democrat in his first term, returned home to build a life and run for office after representing his country in the Paralympics, winning two gold medals and a bronze in basketball. In the 2022 race, Turek climbed and crawled, the latter his own description, to 14,000 doors in House District 20, Council Bluffs in Carter Lake. He won the seat by just six votes, 3,403 to 3,397. Not every individual with a disability has that ability to do so, Turek said. I just crawled stairs, crawled with my wheelchair up there, won by six votes. Now I'm here. Speaking a Latino event in Bayless Park in downtown Counts Bluffs recently, the Pottawatomie County Democratic Party Chair Lisa Lymer said Turk's work ethic is among the best she has seen in local politics. He really put in the work. He was there every day. He was knocking on doors, having conversations with people, Lima said. I think that's what makes the difference. I see him going far. He's a dynamic personality. He's a man that doesn't settle for mediocrity. He has plans. I did some door knocking with him last year, and I'm just amazed, Lima added. I thought myself an able-bodied person should take the harder doors, but no, he's doing it, overcoming those obstacles, just to talk to those people. He's representing all people. We need that. Linda Nelson, a force in Iowa Democratic politics, a former Iowa House member and one-time president of the Iowa State Education Association, the muscular public schools teachers union, sees Turk's work ethic much as Lima does. As spring arrives again, we can count on Representative Turk to be out in the neighborhoods across his district of Carter Lake and Council Bluffs, knocking on doors and listening to concerns and asking for votes, Nelson said. Turk's intense focus is Council Bluffs. In fact, he quickly dismisses media speculation about his potential for statewide office. He's everywhere in this western border Iowa City, sometimes four or five events in a day. At Rotary meetings, getting an update on the Army National Guard, then off to a meeting on dock and water issues at Carter Lake. The next day, working on a bipartisan plan to improve the relative tax situation in Council Plus to attract more residential and commercial development, he's competitive and wants his city to develop. And in polarized times, key Republicans like working with Turek, a Democrat that they see as moderate and results-oriented. And a man they like personally obviously he works very hard and he's had a good first session said state representative brent sechrist a republican from council Bluffs. he's all over the community very thoughtful very smart we collaborate well in terms of council Bluffs, he's a good representative for council Bluffs. a veteran republican and party leader a former speaker of the iowa house and nearly congressman Save for a final GOP convention sprint by U.S. Representative Steve King two decades ago, Seacrest, of course, can actually endorse Turk, a Democrat. But Seacrest, uh, whom Turk considers a mentor, comes close to sounding like Turk's campaign manager. Seacrest said Turk is a pioneer for the disabled in much the same way Black or Latino legislatures were a generation ago, when the Iowa Legislature might only have one elected minority figure it's a lot of pressure on him because he is permanently disabled he is the focal point for anybody in the state of iowa that may be disabled they have somebody to call now so that puts a lot of weight on him that there's that there's guy about 15% of the american population is disabled making the community one of the more underrepresented in american government Turk notes one of the leading advocates at the state capitol for people with disabilities is Carolyn Crow, the public policy manager for the Iowa Developmental Disabled Council. Turek is a leader on policy to be certain, she says, and his presence is vital for thousands of Iowans whose lives he understands more directly than most people, Crow said. Most people need to see some, something visibly, Crow said. His disability is visible. When you have to retrofit an old building like the Iowa Capitol, For however long iowa has been the capital so somebody in the wheelchair can get in the legislature and the building wasn't even equipped to handle a person with a wheelchair then some other issues that surround the disability community all of a sudden it's like hmm are we doing enough it opens the discussion for more the main thing about turek is he's council blessed through and through says longtime council bus mayor matt walsh republican for the things he did for a freshman house member I felt it was unusual, and I only anticipate that as he gets some seniority, he's going to do even better. People in town knew Josh before he got into politics. Walsh said Turk is researched and spot on with how he views Iowa's current state of affairs and its future. Josh came to see me earlier, and it was evident he was a little smarter than the average bear, Walsh said. We developed a good friendship, and I think the surprising thing in these days of politics is I can tell when I'm in Des Moines that he's well respected by members of the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party. He relates well to our Republican elected officials from Southwest Iowa. They respect his opinion. Walsh said Republican gave Turek a second look not afforded at the Democrats. I don't know that you get a third look unless you produce and I think they like his perspective that he's a listener, a doer, and has valuable input on stuff, Walsh said. He dove in and is learning that job at an accelerated pace of what I think typically would be the case. And the local ties can be underestimated, Walsh said. Turek's father, John Turek, is retired. His mother, Luellen Turek, also retired, was a state social worker for people with mental disabilities. He has four siblings, including three sisters, Ulette, Rochelle, and Alicia, an Abraham Lincoln High School alum who went to Oral Roberts University and played professional basketball in Spain. Turek's brother, John, went to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where he played basketball. He also played 11 years as professional basketball in Europe. He, Josh, has a hell of a story to tell, Seeger said. I think people understand that. The Turek name in Council Bless is a kind of well-known because of his brother and sisters all played basketball. And for his part, Turek maintains a vigorous exercise regimen. Friends and const- Constituents often shout words of encouragement or questions and comments on politics as Turk, nearly da- as Turk nearly daily wheels or pushes from his home on Park Wild Drive in the Count's Bluffs Hills with sweeping views of downtown Omaha to the west to the YMCA a mile and a half away. Josh has an inspiring story, says State Auditor Rob Sand, a Democrat. He's got a really strong work ethic and a bright future as a leader here in Iowa. As of yet, Republicans have not fielded a challenger for Turk's House seat in what is a string, swing district, one in which a strong GOP contender would have a solid chance of snatching the seat, even from a local leader as popular as Turk. The tribalism and national identification with party, Democrat or Republican, is that defining. The election margin in 2022, after all, was just six votes. I know the party's working on it, but no name so far, Segrist said. I suspect they will try to find somebody in the end, but right now, I would have to say it appears he won't have a formidable challenger, but that could change." Walsh, who has served as mayor for 10 years and in elected office for 28 years, said Turek is an essential attribute to politics on a high level. Empathy. It makes him both an effective policymaker and politician, Walsh said. I think the handicap brings benefits as well as detriments. And that is empathy for the struggle of those that maybe haven't been able to dealt the full set of cards that they need to be successful in life. Josh has fought through and knows what life, what it's like to break those barriers. He thinks he's empathetic to those who need an ear. Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst, a Windsor Heights Democrat, said Turek's victory in 2022 was a huge step for statewide Democrats. He's been up to the task for sure, and we've really seen him rise to the occasion. The Iowa House chamber was not accessible for people with disabilities before Turk's arrival. It was really a visible change to the chamber in a good way, she said. We were able to see through his eyes just how inaccessible the chamber was, and we are glad it's more accessible now. Khan first sees Turk's background as leader to potential opportunities for higher office. Having an athlete in the caucus is always good because you know you're going to have a really competitive candidate and really competitive legislature, and that's certainly been true. We know what motivates Josh. When we talk about how he only won by six votes, we remind him that that's only because he knocked doors that last day. Confir said Turk is well known for getting things done. I think without question, John, Josh Turk has the ability to win statewide, whether that's taking back Tom Harkin's Senate seat. Whether that's running for governor, whether that's running for statewide office, Converse said, he has an appeal across the state and he has a work ethic to get it done. He has a good mix of confidence and humility, which is always hard to find in a politician. Our next story is by Scott Stewart of the Nonpareil. Mathias and family pays for Christmas cheer for kids. Over a dozen children at Children's Square USA had a memorable Christmas thanks to the generosity of one Council Plus family. A donation from the Mathias and Family Fund helped the organization rent a local theater for a special movie screening complete with popcorn, candy, and other treats, according to a news release. The children had a festive dinner and received stockings with goodies, along with specifically selected gifts, such as books and board games. This will be an unforgettable holiday for the children on our campus over the holiday season, Bill Taylor, a ch- chief administrative officer of Children's Square, said in the release. The generous donation from the Matthiason family will not only bring joy and fun to the kids, but will also have a lasting positive effect on their lives. The Matthiason family, comprised of Cindy and Jerry, along with their adult children and grandchildren, collaboratively decides on a charitable grant destination for the holiday season, and they selected Children's Square this year. Children's Square is an important regional charity and mainstay in our community, Jerry Mathiasson said in release. As a family, we wanted to play a role this year in helping meet the needs of its children over the holidays. Other nonprofits nonprofits supported Mathias and Family Fund have included Family Incorporated, Micah House, Pottawatomie Conservation, the historic Dodge House, CHI Health Mercy Hospital, Dream Playground, and the historic Regent Home. The fund is administered by Community Foundation for Western Iowa. Okay, now we're gonna hit to, to a little national news. World population up by 75 million this year. The world population grew by 75 million people over the past year, and on New Year's Day, it will stand at more than eight billion people, according to figures released Thursday by the U.S. Census Bureau. A worldwide growth rate in the past year was just under 1%. At the start of 2024, according to the Census Bureau's figures, 4.3 births and two deaths are expected worldwide every second. The growth rate for the United States in the past year was just 0.53%, about half the worldwide figure. The U.S. added 1.7 million people and will have a population on New Year's Day of 335.8 million people. At the start of 2024, the U.S. is expected to see one birth every nine seconds and one death every nine five seconds. However, immigration will keep the population from dropping. More Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week, but not enough to raise concern about the labor market or broader economy. Claims rose to 218,000 for the week ending December 23rd, an increase of 12,000 from the prior week, the Labor Department reported Thursday. Sight of student killings leveled. The house where four University of Idaho students were killed last week was demolished Thursday, marking an emotional step for the victim's families in a close-knit community that was shocked and devastated by the brutal stabbings. The sounds of construction equipment pierced the early morning air as an excavator started tearing down the front part of the house. The former walls formed a large pile of crushed and smashed wood on the ground as debris was picked up and loaded into a dump truck. A few onlookers joined dozens of members of the news media. The owner of the rental home near the university campus in Moscow, Idaho, donated it to the university this year. It has since been boarded up and blocked off by a security fence. Students Ethan Chapin, Exanier Canoodle, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Goncalves were stabbed to death there in November 2022. School officials, who in February announced plans to raise the head, Raise the house, view the demolition as a key step toward healing and finding closure, University spokesperson Jody Walker said. It's incredibly powerful and emotional to see it come down, she said as she watched the demolition. We've turned into that next chapter, whatever the next chapter is, and that definitely is a bit of a relief. Brian Kohlberger, a former criminology graduate student of Washington State University in neighboring Pullman, Washington, is charged with four counts of murder. The concerns from victims' families previously prompted the university to pu- push back the time frame for demolition. After initially announcing the plan in February, the school in July said it would pause the process and revisit it in October. Prosecutors who hope to try Kohlberger next summer told university officials they don't anticipate needing the house any further as they were already able to gather measurements necessary for creating exhibits for a jury. Kohlberger's defense team was given access to the House this month to gather photos, measurements, and other documentation. In October, the FBI gathered the House to collect data that would be used to create visual aids for juries at the upcoming trial. State official bars Trump, U.S. Supreme Court, to weigh state authority to block ex-president. This is from Portland, Maine. Maine's Democratic Secretary of State on Thursday removed former President Donald Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot under the Constitution's Insurrection Clause. The first election official to take action unilaterally as a U.S. Supreme Court is poised to decide whether Trump remains eligible to return to the White House. Secretary of State Shenna Bellow's decision follows a ruling earlier this month by the Colorado Supreme Court that booted Trump from the ballot there under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That decision has been stayed until the U.S. Supreme Court decides whether Trump is barred by the Civil War era provision, which prohibits those who engaged in insurrection from holding office. Bellows found Trump could no longer run for his prior job because his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol violated Section 3. She made the ruling after some state residents, including a bipartisan group of former lawmakers, challenged Trump's position on the ballot. I do not reach this conclusion lightly, Bellows wrote in her 34-page decision. I am mindful that no Secretary of State has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I am also mindful however that no presidential candidate has ever before engaged in insurrection the trump campaign immediately slammed the ruling we are witnessing in real time the attempted theft of an election and the disenfranchisement of the american voter campaign spokesman stephen chung said in a statement the trump campaign said it would appeal bellows decision in maine state courts and Bellow suspended her ruling into that court system rules on the case. Legal experts said Thursday's ruling demonstrates the need for the nation's highest court, which has never ruled on Section 3 to clarify what states can do. The timing on the U.S. Supreme Court's decision is unclear. Colorado's Republican Party appealed the Colorado High Court's decision Wednesday, urging an expedited schedule, and Trump also is expected to file an appeal within the week. Petitioners in the Colorado case urge the nation's highest court Thursday to adopt an even faster schedule so it can rule before March 5th, Super Tuesday, when 16 states, including Colorado and Maine, will vote in the Republican presidential nominating process. The high court needs to formally accept the case first, but legal experts consider that a certainty. Documents Unsealed in Capitol Riot Case a Pennsylvania man sentenced in secret for his role in the U.S. Capitol riot cooperated with authorities investigating the January 6, 2021 attack and an unrelated case according to court documents unsealed this week. The documents were unsealed Wednesday after a coalition of news outlets moved to publicity release records in the case. They provide insight into the unusual secrecy of the case of Samuel Lazar. Who was released from federal custody in September after completing his sentence? The unsealed records show Lazar of Ephradi, Pennsylvania admitted he sprayed a chemical irritant at police at the Capitol and used a bullhorn to encourage rioters to take officers' weapons. He pleaded guilty to assaulting officers using a dangerous weapon and was sentenced to thirty months in prison in March. Dozens killed as Israel expands Gaza offensive airstrikes hit cities, towns, refugee camps across the territory. Israel forces bombarded cities, towns, and refugee camps across Gaza on Thursday, killing dozens of people in a widening offensive against Hamas that forced thousands more to flee from homes and shelters in recent days. The war already killed more than 20,000 Palestinians and drove about 85% of the population of 2.3 million from their homes. Much of northern Gaza has been leveled and has been largely depopulated and isolated for weeks. Many fear a similar fate awaits the south as Israel expands its offensive to most of the tiny enclave. Israel vowed to dismantle Hamas, which is still putting up stiff resistance and bring back more than 100 hostages still held by the militants after the October 7th attack into southern Israel. That assault killed some 1,200 people, mostly civilians. Israeli officials brushed off international calls for a ceasefire, saying it would amount to a victory for Hamas. Humanitarian workers say the amount of food, fuel, and medical supplies entering Gaza is still far below what is needed. And one in four Palestinians in Garva is starving, according to UN officials. And in today's weather, um, we're expecting mostly sunny Winds from the northwest at 7 to 14 miles per hour and a high of 37. Tonight it will be clear. Winds from the northwest at 6 to 12 miles per hour with a low of 27. On Saturday, sunshine and patchy clouds. Wind will be west-northwest at 6 to 12 miles per hour, high of 39 and a low of 21. Sunday, looks like it's going to get a little colder, some sun, breezy. Winds north Northwest, 10 to 20 miles per hour, a high of 27, a low of 15. Monday, which is New Year's Day, looks like it's not as cold with sunshine. Wind, west-southwest, 4 to 8 miles per hour, a high of 34. And Tuesday, mostly sunny. Winds, west-southwest, 7 to 14 miles per hour, high of 39, low of 23. And now we have a couple stories from Ask Amy. Women without children struggles with friendship. Dear Amy, I am a woman in my late 30s. My husband and I don't have children. Almost everyone we know does. We have demanding jobs with little time during the week to unwind. I love my friends' kids, but I'm both exhausted from maintaining those friendships and deeply unsatisfied with the quality. On the weekends, in a search for some connection and rejuvenation, I find myself driving hours or taking expensive trips to other cities to visit friends, essentially expanding a ton of effort for an hour or two with a friend during which we have a few minutes of adult conversation. These friends don't have any capacity to travel to me because they have young kids, and while I don't expect that, I'm feeling sad and neglected. I've stopped making the effort as much as I used to. I need time to recharge, and these visits are really depleting. We have tried very hard to make new friends nearby as well. This is going okay, although even these friends are having babies and cannot engage easily with others. My husband and I feel exhausted all the time and I'm so lonely. My husband thinks my low mood and loneliness are affecting our marriage. I'm writing because I just canceled a trip to go to the city four hours away for dinner with a dear old friend to meet his new partner because I was sad that a trip that long didn't warrant any additional quality time. But the more I pull back to try to feel less exhausted and lonelier I become. Your advice, Dear Exhausted, you do sound exhausted as well as depressed. Your take on the challenge of maintaining faraway friendships with people who have young children is accurate. You can spend hours of effort for a few moments of adult connection, This is one reason parents of young children tend to clump together. Their moments of mutual distraction dovetail well at this stage of life. I think you would really benefit from clearing your calendar temporarily in order to focus on taking care of yourself. You and your husband are in the shank of life, at your busiest and most productive. And while this activity level is genuinely tiring at this stage of life, You should also have the energy and capacity to rise to and even thrive through your challenges. Take two months to devote to getting some answers. Get a thorough medical checkup and accurately describe your energy level. Ask your physician for a referral to a psychiatrist or therapist to talk about your emotional challenges and depressions. Go to the dentist. Get a haircut. Start an outdoor walking program with your husband on weekend mornings. Look for an in-person or online book club for another organization corresponding to your interest to join. Mitigating loneliness can be hard work, but it starts with essential self-care. Dear Amy, Uncharted was dealing with teacher reports that her bright and curious son was disruptive in reading class. Wow, that sounds familiar. I had similar behaviors, especially in reading. I was labeled as disruptive, until I was finally diagnosed with ADHD, that changed everything. Dear student, I agree this boy should be evaluated. Thank you. You are listening to the Council Bluffs Nonpareil on Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, John McPartland. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, give us a call at five one five. 243-6833 and now we'll return uh, now we'll turn to today's obituaries okay today we have one obituary sally a nielsen february 15 1940 december 26 2023 sally ann nielsen age 83 of modale iowa passed away december 26 2023 at prairie gate in Council bless Sally was born February 15, 1940, and counts blessed to the late Owen and Julie Barrett Whithower. She graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School in 1958. Sally married uh, Bert C. Nielsen Jr. on June 27, 1958. They were blessed with two daughters, Julie and Lori. Sally was a homemaker and had a great love of horses. She was a member of Reach Church in Blair, Nebraska. In addition to her parents, Sally was preceded in death by her grandson, Jonathan Nielsen, in 1999, two sisters, and three brothers. Sally is survived by her husband of 65 years, Bert C. Nielsen, Jr., of Modale, Iowa, daughters Julie Nielsen and Lori Burns, three grandchildren, Josh, Tyler, and Marquis, five great-grandchildren, and other relatives and friends. Graveside service and burial will be held Friday in Garner Township Cemetery. Memorials are suggested to Special Olympics or Midlands Humane Society. Okay, and now we have some sports news. The Cleveland Browns keep rolling. The clinch postseason bid. Cleveland tops Jets for franchise's second playoff spot in 21 years. Joe Flacco passed for 309 yards and three touchdowns, and the Cleveland Browns clinched an unlikely playoff berth, just their second since 2002, despite numerous injuries this season, with a 37-20 win over the New York Jets on Thursday night. The Browns, 11-5, are assured of a wild-card spot and still have a chance to win the AFC North, and maybe the conference's number one overall seed, something that seemed unfa, unfa- <laughs> Unfathomable just weeks ago as major injuries piled up. But things have changed since Flacco arrived. Cleveland has been charmed. The 38 year old quarterback improved to four and one as a starter with the Browns, who plucked the Super Bowl 47 most valuable player off his couch in New Jersey last month to hopefully rescue their season. He's done that and more. Flacco threw two touchdown passes to Jerome Ford in the first half as the Browns built a 20-point lead over the Jets, who chose not to re-sign the 15-year veteran after he spent three seasons with them and after Aaron Rodgers tore his Achilles tendon in Week 1. Flacco torched New York for 296 yards in the first half and became the first quarterback in 34 games to go over 300 yards against the Jets. He's also the first Cleveland quarterback to pass for more than 300 yards in four straight games. The Jets were forced to start Trevor Simeon for the second week in a row with Zach Wilson sidelined by a concussion. Simeon had some nice moments, but an overthrow late in the first quarter was returned 30 yards for a touchdown by safety Ronnie Hickman to put the Browns up 20-7. New York's Jermaine Johnson had a pick six in the second quarter when he beautifully deflected Flacco's pass to himself and returned at 37 yards. Nothing has been easy this season for the Browns, who have continued to win despite being overrun by injuries since the opener. Blacko is their fourth starting quarterback. They're missing both first-team offensive tackles and 12 players, including quarterback Deshaun Watson and running back Nick Chubb on the injured reserve. So it was fitting they went into their biggest game this season missing their starting kicker, punter, and wide receiver, Amara Cooper, who was coming off a franchise record-setting 265-yard performance on Sunday in Houston. The Browns got their first look at kicker Riley Patterson and punter Matt Hawk, both signed earlier this week. Patterson, filling in for an injured Dustin Hopkins, went 4-for-5 on extra points and made a 33-yard field goal with 2.54 seconds left. Hawk averaged 51.7 yards on his three punts. Kansas State University rushing attack heats up in Pop-Tarts Bowl victory. <clears throat> Avery Johnson threw for two touchdowns and ran for one. D.J. Giddens rushed for 151 yards and a score in Kansas State beat number 19 North Carolina State in the Pop-Tarts Bowl on Thursday night. Johnson, a freshman making his first start after Will Howard entered the transfer portal, transfer threw for 178 yards, rushed for 71, and directed a 15-play, 72-yard touchdown drive in the fourth quarter that put the game away and closed out a solid season for Coach Chris Clemens' Wildcats, 9-4 and four overall. Quarterback Brennan Armstrong rushed for 121 yards and a touchdown and threw for 164 yards in his final game for the Wolfpack, who fell short of winning 10 games for the second time in program history. Uh, Boston College... Um had 23-17 over SMU. Thomas Costellas had two fourth-quarter touchdown runs, and Boston College beat number 17 SMU in the Fenway Bowl at the home of the Boston Red Sox, snapping the Mustangs' nine-game winning streak. Costellanis rushed for 150 yards and completed 11 of 18 passes for 102 yards. Kai Robichaud also had a scoring run for the Eagles who have a main campus that's, that's located about four miles away from Fenway. Rutgers 31, Miami 24. Kyle Menagerie rushed for 163 yards and a touchdown on 25 carries to help Rutgers a victory over Miami in the pinstripe bowl at Yankee Stadium. The victory gave the Scarlet Knights 7-6, and six, their first winning season since 2014, when they went 8-4 and four in their inaugural Big Ten season. Miami, 7-6, has dropped five straight bowl games. Arizona wins over Oklahoma 38 to 24. Gunner Maltanado returned a fumble, 87 yards for a touchdown, and also had an interception as number 14 Arizona, 10 3, forced six turnovers in a 38 24 comeback victory over number 12 Oklahoma in the Valero Alamo Bowl. Noah Fafidi threw for 354 yards and two touchdowns for Arizona, which closed their final Pac-12 season with seven straight victories. Oklahoma freshman Jackson Arnold threw for 361 yards and two touchdowns, but he also had three interceptions in his first career start. College football playoffs ends talk of a split national championship. The question seemed like a valid one moments after unbeaten ACC champion Florida State was left out of the college football playoffs. Could the fourth ranked Seminoles, with a victory against defending national champion and number six Georgia in the Orange Bowl, be voted number one in the final Associated Press Top 25 College Football poll? As a matter of principle, I'd consider ranking Florida State number one, regardless of whether they are in the college football playoff field, said. ESPN's Reese Davis, a longtime AP Top 25 voter, much like the selection process itself, the exercise is who, in my judgment, is the best team. In reality, though, the current state college, the current state of college football's postseason, all but renders the conversation moot. Between players transferring or opting out to concentrate on NFL draft preparations and coaching staffs turned upside down by hirings and firings. The better question these days is how much consideration should poll voters give to postseason games outside of the college football playoffs at all. This is my 14th time as an AP voter, and I would definitely think I would be less likely to vote teams considerably up or down after the bowls than I did in the past, said Scott Ribalas of the Advocate of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. On Saturday at the Orange Bowl, Florida State will be a shell of the team that won the Atlantic Coast Conference Championship. Quarterback. Jordan Travis is still recovering from a broken leg, an injury that essentially kept the Seminoles out of the playoffs. Many of Florida State's best players, including defensive end Jared Verse, running back Trey Benson, and receiver Kayon Coleman have opted out as they look toward the NFL draft. Earlier this week, number 2 quarterback Tate Rodemaker chose to transfer and skip the game. Some of the Seminoles who will play weren't shy about saying, that they should be number 1 if they finish as the only unbeaten Power 5 team. It's only right, linebacker, Killeen Deloche told reporters of the Orange Bowl. Nothing else needs to be said if we're the only undefeated team. The Seminoles will face a Georgia team in much better shape. Nineteen Bulldogs hit the transfer portal after the season, though most were backup players. It does look as if All-American tight end Brock Powers and highly regarded tackle Amaris Mims will miss the game after a season interrupted by injuries. If Florida State handles Georgia easily, and the three college football games were duds, then I'd gladly vote for the Seminoles number one. But it's not going to happen. The last time there was a split national title was 2003, when Southern California was voted number one by AP after lift, being left out of the bowl title game, won by LSU over Oklahoma. The four-team playoff has all but ensured it will never happen again. We've got some interesting moments in today in history. On December 29, 1845, Texas was admitted as the 28th state. In 1812, the American frigate USS Constitution engaged and severely damaged the British frigate HMS Java off Brazil during the War of 1812. In 1890, the Wounded Knee Massacre took place in South Dakota as an estimated 300 Sioux Indians were killed by U.S. troops sent to disarm them. In 1940, during World War II, Germany dropped incendiary bombs on London, setting off what came to be known as the Second Great Fire of London. In 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401, a Lockheed L-1011 Tristar, crashed into the Florida Everglades near Miami International Airport, killing 101 of the 176 people aboard. In 1978, during Gator Bowl, Ohio State coach Woody Hayes punched Clemson player Charlie Bauman, who intercepted an Ohio State pass. Hayes was fired the next day. In 1992, the United States and Russia announced agreement on a nuclear arms reduction treaty. In 2006, word reached the United States of the execution of former Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein. Because of the time difference, it was the morning of December 30th in Iraq when the hanging took place. George W. Bush called the execution an important milestone on Iraq's road to democracy in 2007, the New England Patriots ended the regular season with a remarkable 16 0 record following a 38 35 comeback victory over the New York Giants. New England became the first NFL team since the 1972 Dolphins to win every game on their schedule. In 2016, the United States struck back at Russia for hacking the U.S. presidential campaign with a sweeping set of punishments targeting. Russia's spy agencies, and diplomats. In 2021, British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted in New York of helping lure teenage girls to be sexually abused by the late Jeffrey Epstein. The verdict capped a month-long trial featuring accounts of sexual exploitations of girls as young as 14. Maxwell would be sentenced to 20 years in prison. I found some articles here in Dear Kathy, Dear Kathy, I have a four-year-old rescue cat that we got at nine months old. For three years, he had no problem using the litter box. A little over a month ago, he started pooping in the dining room. He still uses the litter box to pee in, but won't when he poops. The litter has been the same brand since we got him. We have had cats over 40 years, and this is the first time we have experienced this. Dear Joe, Whenever sudden behavioral changes occur, I recommend visiting the vet to find rule out any health problems, so please do that first. There is a chance that your cat may be a little constipated, and if he is, it can be uncomfortable for him to poop in the litter box. Your vet can talk to you about that as well, but here are my recommendations. First, add more water to his diet by feeding him wet food or buying a kitty water fountain. Second, Add an over-the-counter digestive supplement to his diet, which could be high-fiber treat, or a supplement that aids digestion. There are a lot of products, and even pet foods, that are designed to improve digestion. Next, try an over-the-counter cat litter attractant that you can sprinkle in the litter box. These products are designed, are uh, these products are sentlers designed to draw your cat back to the box. And finally, add a second litter box to your home. Make sure you put it in a low-traffic location where your cat can't get startled by either animals or humans. Let me know how it goes. Dear Kathy, I am writing about the dog who suddenly wouldn't use the steps to get onto the bed. We had a similar problem with our 8-year-old Bichon Fries. My husband had the brilliant thought that our dog had lost traction while trying to use the stairs and got freaked out. So we put a small rug under the stairs that extended up. A few feet, which solved the problem. could also be that the dog's eyesight has diminished and just taking sure the area is well lit when your dog wants to get on the bed might help. Trish of Tucson, Arizona. Dear Trish, as we age, stars are more challenging for humans and dogs alike. Making accommodations like picking up a dog and placing him on and off the bed, keeping the space illuminated so they can see the stairs or stairs, and providing a carpet under stair for traction, good thinking on your husband's part. Switching a stair out for a ramp are all easy things to try when this happens to our canine friends. Thanks for your tips. Here seems to be an interesting article about why more women live on the East Coast while men outnumber them in the West. Anyone who has suspected that there are more women than men where they live, or vice versa, will find fodder for their suspicions in new data from the U.S. Census Bureau. Whether it refutes or confirms their suspicions likely depends on where they live. Women tend to outnumber men in the largest urban counties east of the Mississippi River, along the eastern seaboard, and in the deep south. While the West skews male, according to the data released last week from the 2022 American Community Survey, five-year estimates, those numbers were also backed up by age and sex figures from the 2020 census released earlier this year. There are limitations to what can be concluded from the data. Still, Nancy Everbach, 57, doesn't find the number surprising. She lost her husband eight years ago and has since found it hard to meet a compatible partner. Across the US in 2022, the most recent year that figures were available, there were 96.6 adult men for every 100 adult women. And in the Atlanta suburb of DeKalb County, where Everbach lives, That ratio was 87.1, according to the survey. An equal ratio of men to women would be 100. It's really tough to find quality men who share similar values, Averbach said. There aren't many single groups that cater to her age group, she says, and when such groups put on events, they usually attract more women than men. Her county has a low sex ratio, which means there are more women than men. A high ratio indicates that there are more men than women. The sex ratio numbers don't reflect sexual preference, gender identity, or whether those surveyed are looking for partners. Those figures also don't reflect intersex people who historically have had relatively scant data collected on them. The ratios vary by geography in part because of the presence of certain institutions and industries with gender imbalances. In the most populous counties in the West, this is especially discernible. San Diego, for instance, has several male domin- dominated military bases, which is reflected in the sex ratio. In Austin, San Francisco, Seattle, and San Jose, there are plentiful jobs in tech, a sector where men account for around three quarters of the workforce. This is in contrast to areas with large numbers of colleges or universities which typically have more women, according to the Census Bureau report from May. According to the imbalance are the effects of historic racism in the U.S., including high rates of incarnation and the mortality gap, which have lowered the number of men in some communities. Among U.S. counties with 500,000 residents or more, the areas where adult women outnumber adult men most noticeably were in Baltimore, New York, Atlanta, and Philadelphia, as well as Birmingham, Alabama, and Memphis, Tennessee, where the ratios ranged in the mid-80s. The biggest imbalances of men to women with ratios above 103 for those age 18 and over were recorded in the West in counties that are home to Colorado Springs, Colorado, and Austin, as well as California counties that are home to San Francisco, San Jose, and Bakersfield, where agriculture and energy are two of the biggest industries. At birth, the sex ratio in the U.S. has historically been 105 men for every 100 women. That ratio inverts around age 30. Since the mortality rate is higher for men than it is for women at almost every age group due to violence, drinking, smoking, job hazards, and suicide, that ratio decreases with age until at age 90 or above there are typically about two women for every man. Compared to the previous decade though, more men are now living into older age according to the 2020 census. What does this mean for relationships? Michael Nestadter a professional matchmaker in the Philadelphia area, has given the imbalance some thought, and mostly in terms of the dating market because of her work. She thinks single women are more likely than men to live within the city limits of Philadelphia, but that single men are more willing to commute from the suburbs than vice versa. She advises people looking for a partner to put in the effort, perhaps even to expand the geographical reach of the day-to-day lives. It should take work, she said, because nothing is sweeter than something you have to work for. In communities with more men than women, people tend to marry at an earlier age than in places where women outnumber men. Women are more likely to live with a partner without getting married in places where they outnumber men, and if they do marry, it is more often to men who are less educated or earn less than they do. That's not likely to happen with Averbach, who is doing just fine on her own in suburban Atlanta. Why would I want to settle, she said. I don't need a guy to make me happy. Here we have a guide to end of year giving. It's a guide on how to donate to charitable organizations as 2023 ends. Christmas is over, but the giving season for nonprofits is just starting to peak. The end of the calendar year is when nonprofits make appeals far and wide to attract donors, in part because of holiday traditions or for some tax advantages. Nonprofits get about 30% of their annual donations in December including 10% in the final three days of the year, according to marketing agency nonprofit source. This is one of the busiest times of the year for us as we assist donors with their year-end giving, said Aaron Musgrove, a spokesman for the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. Many potential donors don't realize how much nonprofits value even small gifts, especially local organizations that meet community needs. And nonprofits and industrial groups warned that donations are down this year, so gifts right now could help them a lot. Only 11% of Americans itemize their taxes, which allow them to claim significant tax deductions for charitable donations. That means most Americans don't give in December for tax reasons. They're thinking about the organization in their community that's having an impact and digging deep and giving, said Chuck Collins, director of the program of INOT inequitably and the common good of the Institute for Policy Studies. As you watch commercial appeals and sort through donation quests, here are some things to consider. Where should I donate? Experienced donors often have a short list of criteria they use to help select nonprofits to support it. Could be organizations that serve the area where they live or specific causes or issues with which they have a personal connection. A question to ask yourself is, what are the issues or communities that are important to me, and where do I want to make a difference? A great way to find out about organizations in your area is to ask your friends, co-workers, neighbors. They may have interacted directly with nonprofit that supports after-school programs, sends companions to elderly residents, advocates around traffic safety, or supports local artists. For any topic that is important to you, an organization in your area is likely working on it. Another potential consideration is check if your employee will match donations to the nonprofit you want to support. If so, your donation could go even further. If you feel burdened by all the urgent appeals everywhere, from the checkout line to the mail or online, one tactic is to make a budget and set aside time to give to organizations important to you. Be realistic, make a plan and then set aside the guilt. Some donors say they want their dollars to go directly to the nonprofit's work and not to pay for rent or salaries. This perennial view or wasteful overhead spending has some drawbacks, though, to be clear. Donors have good reason to assess the organizations they support carefully. But a useful data point comes from the nonprofit ratings agencies themselves. Starting 10 years ago, the agencies like BBB, Wise Giving Alliance, and GuideStars now part of a candy team, up to challenge the idea that the best way to measure the value of the nonprofit was the portion of its funds spent on administrative costs and fundraising. Michael Thatcher, the president and CEO of Charity Navigator, which overhauled its ratings methodology in September, advises that donors consider the organization's impact and whether it's achieving its mission. What does the money do, not where was the money spent? What if I don't have a lot to give? People who study philanthropy and advise donors like Vanessa Lee, a program officer who coordinates giving circles at the Chicago Foundation for Women, emphasize that giving back is not the purview of the ultra wealthy. It's not like you have to have millions of dollars to be be philanthropist. You can do this at $10 a month. Additionally, donations from low and middle income people who give smaller amounts usually go directly to nonprofit organizations, in contrast, to many of the wealthiest donors. Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies said his organization his organization has researched forgiving behaviors of billionaires and found that a growing portion of the overall dollars donated each year goes to donor advised funds and foundations, not directly to nonprofits. In one recent example, the CEO of Dell Technologies, Michael Dell, donated stocks valued at $1.7 billion in October and in December to the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation and to donor-advised funds for future charitable donations. Private foundations are obligated to grant out at least 5% of their assets each year, and there is no minimum granting requirement for DAFs. The very wealthy are given in to intermediaries that control and parking the money indefinitely. So there's more of a tax advantage goal, whereas most people are giving regardless of their tax consequence. Well, this brings us to the end of today's reading of Council of osnab I'm your reader, John McPartland. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Have a great day.